0: The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. How's everybody doing? My name is Paul, and I'm one of the pastors here. And a few minutes ago, I was out in the lobby kind of chatting to some folks, and my daughter came out to kind of tell me to come in and and sing with her and the family. She said, Dad, you wore that same shirt last week. And I was like, I'm so self-conscious right now Did I wear this. I said, no, honey, this is, I, I wore the exact same style shirt, different color last week. She kind of rolled her eyes, but I got like four shirts that I wear. So you're going to get used to seeing those things. Over and over, uh, we uh, we are in a, a series here in the Gospel of Mark, and man, we started this uh, months and months ago, back in September, and we are on the last four messages in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to wrap this up by the end of July, and like Jeremy said, beginning in uh, August, we're going to we're going to have a little short series. In the, uh, the 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 Psalms, looking forward to that. I'm really we're kind of at the you know this is the apex or the climax of Mark's gospel, so we're kind of in the really uh, the the heavy aspects of the gospel. And it's interesting because normally this is a text we'll teach around Easter, Good Friday. And we kind of, you know, we're, we're sticking to a calendar on those weeks, and we kind of have to move quickly through the through the Gospels, or we have one or two weeks to, to to look at these texts if we're teaching them just at the it's the Easter season. But I'm glad that we have four weeks to slowly kind of move through these texts, through these last couple chapters over the next several weeks as we kind of seek to wrap our mind fully around uh, the message of Mark and who is Jesus, this Son of God and suffering servant who came to save us. We are, we got, a couple of weeks ago we started in chapter 14. Now, the Mark's broken up in kind of different sections. We, we call the last, well, chapters 14 and 15 is, is often referred to as the passion narrative. And that word passion comes from a Latin word that means suffering. And so this is about the suffering of Jesus, and we're going to even see the trajectory in our passage today begins in verse 26 with Jesus uh, singing hymns with his disciples in the safety of the upper room uh, after the Last Supper, and it ends with him in custody, abandoned and alone. So we begin to really gaze upon the suffering of our Lord today as we journey through this passage. Would you please open up with me to Mark 14? We're going to be. I'm going to read its entirety, verses 26. Through fifty-two, And then today what we're going to do is we are going to, rather than kind of work going back and working through it chronologically, we're going to make three observations of the passage as we, as we kind of look at it today. Let's read, it. it's in entirety, uh, verses 26 through 52 as we begin. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even if they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you might not enter temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away, and he prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, "Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand." verse 43. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came out of the tw- one of the 12, Judas came, one of the 12, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now, the betrayer had given them a sign Saying, The one I kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but, let's, but let the scriptures be fulfilled and they all left him and fled a young man was following a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body and they seized him but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked today as we look at the passage I want us to make three observations. There's three things I think that are important for us to see. Three things that I'm hoping together as we study this text that we can see as as the body of Christ today. Here's the three things. The, The one thing I want us to see today is the sorrow of Jesus. I want us to see and diagnose a bit the sorrow of Jesus. The second thing I want us to see is the command of Jesus to his disciples. I want us to look at what it is that he commanded his disciples in this moment. And the third thing that I want us to see is the obedience of Jesus, which I think is primarily the most important thing that we're meant to see as we look at this passage, is we are meant to see the perfect obedience of Jesus. Before I do that, would you pray with me? And we'll work through the text. Father... I'm thankful for the men and women who you've gathered here today God I'm thankful that in your uh, divine sovereign will you have led us to be in this place today at this time to sit under the authority of this word God I pray that you would speak freely through me God if there if there are notes or thoughts or ideas in my head as the preacher today that are not of you God I pray that you would strike those things that I would get out of the way and that you would speak through me to the men and women gathered here today. God, I pray all of us would hear from you. I pray that, God, where, where conviction needs to be experienced and felt that we would feel it and respond to it with a contrite heart, with confession and repentance. I pray, God, that, that, that we would see you more clearly and it would draw out of us a desire to exalt you and worship you and pursue you and make much of you. And so, God, I pray ultimately that you would be glorified today in this place that you would meet us in this place, that we would see and encounter you unmistakably. So God, we, with humble hearts, with seeking hearts, God, we we invite you and we ask of you to encounter us uh, uniquely today in this place. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Several years ago, I was backpacking in, uh, there's this wilderness area in western Montana in Idaho called the Selway bitter Wilderness Area. It's my favorite place on the planet. And I was backpacking in there with my son and my brother-in-law and a couple of friends who I had invited from Wisconsin to, to backpack with me. And we were in a couple of days, and the first couple of days as we were journeying way deep into this wilderness, uh, we experienced some suspect weather, some rain, cool weather, wind. It wasn't, wasn't ideal. And on day three or four, we were way back at this lake, about maybe 14 or 15, miles back, and we had to backpack into Idaho over this exposed pass called Pack Box Pass. And it, I think it goes up to about 8,500 feet or something, and you have to go over this really, all these switchbacks and drop into this long draw that takes you into the backcountry of Idaho. And we were excited about it, and we got up that morning, and it, and it seemed as if the weather was okay. It sort of held off the rain, and so we began our journey, had our backpacks on. And as we got going up that, that, that pass, we started to kind of climb up out of the The timber—we're getting above the timberline, more exposed. When all of a sudden, these these dark, ominous clouds were suddenly upon us. And if any of you have ever done any sort of backcountry uh, hiking or backpacking, you've probably experienced how that could just sneak up on you because of the ridgeline. And before we knew it, we were in the middle of the most savage storm I've ever experienced in my life. It was terrifying. There was wind and sideways sleet slash snow slash rain. It was like 30 degrees and that freezing cold rain water sleet was smacking us in our face. It was soaking to our bones and there was so much of it that it was just coming down in torrents. And as it was hitting the ground, some of it stayed as sleet and snow and some of it turned to water. Water. And on a trail that we're hiking, it's just a river. And there's this water pouring over our boots, into our shoes. We're soaking wet, we're cold, and it goes on and on. I'm hiking with the guy who's really a newbie out there, and he's overwhelmed. He starts to vomit on the trail. He's puking out of exhaustion. And we're trying to figure out how to get his backpack over the passes. He's vomiting. And I'm like, okay, this isn't ideal. And I look at my son, who weighed like 100 pounds, zero body fat. He's soaking wet to the bone. His lips are blue, and he's shivering, and he's terrified. And I'm thinking, Oh, no. Like, I realized, like, we are in serious trouble. And I look at my brother-in-law, who's a little bit more calm under stress than I am, and I say, Russ, we got to stop. we got to build a shelter or something. And he said, kind of looked me in the face, it's stone cold. If we stop, we die. And it hit me. I'm like, I think you're right. It was a terrifying moment. And so we just kind of continued to plod up that hill, getting hammered by the snow, carrying... We were taking turns carrying the backpack of the puking guy because he couldn't carry his backpack. We ended up getting to the top and they began to subside. We journeyed down the backside of the pass, out of the weather. Ultimately, the rain stopped. We took everything off and laid in our underwear on these giant rocks and let the sun warm us up. What a sight to be held. But we, we survived this awful storm. You know, as I think about that storm, like we, you know, ignorantly got ourselves in that predicament. I thought we were going to die. Had we known that that storm was raging, we never would have left our tents, never would have left our home, never would have went into the wilderness. It was a death-defying experience. Had, you know, historically, men and women have died in storms like that. I share that story with you today because I think in our passage, as we look at Jesus in our passage today, we see him willingly stepping into the storm of all storms. He's he's stepping into the storm of all storms. It is a death storm. And we see him leaving the security of the upper room with his disciples. He leaves the city of Jerusalem. He he zigzags his way with his disciples down the Kidron Valley, up on the other side of the valley to this olive grove called Gethsemane. And as we're watching Jesus leave, and as we're seeing the text unfold, we're getting the sense that there has been a storm that has been building throughout this entire gospel, and now the storm is upon us. And it's upon Jesus. And what we see in our passage today is we see Jesus stepping into the center of the storm. And we're meant to see him doing it. As Bible readers, we're meant to look at Jesus in his perfect obedience, stepping into that storm where he could accomplish something for us that we could never accomplish on our own. And so as we look through the text today, I want us to do a couple things. One, I want us to get a sense of the storm. I want us to think about what 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 is making up this storm. I want us to also look at the instructions of Jesus to his disciples. I think there's something really important there for us. But ultimately, like I've said earlier, I want us to all see today, every one of us is I want us to see and worship God in light of his perfect obedience. If you look at the gospel going all the way back to chapter 1, uh, verses 12 and 13, as Mark begins his gospel, the very beginning of the ministry, Jesus is led out to the wilderness where he's tempted by Satan. So you get the sense that what Jesus is about to do is really, really significant. It's Satan himself is coming up against Jesus to try to thwart and stop him. Clearly, there is something serious that Jesus is gonna do that Satan does not want to see happen. So we get a clue very early in Mark's gospel that there is a storm. Chapter three, we have Herodians and Pharisees, Democrats and Republicans, liberals and conservatives in an unholy alliance coming together, unified in their hatred of Jesus and wanting to see him destroyed, Mark 3, 7. So we get the sense storm clouds are building. And as the gospel unfolds, Jesus confronts demoniac after demoniac after demoniac. Fierce opposition, scowling and and screaming and howling, terrified of Jesus. You get the sense that something significant is building. There's a storm that's brewing. Chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, Jesus tells his disciples, I'm going to be delivered over to the hands of the scribes and the chief priests, and they're going to kill me. He also says that he's going to rise from the dead. But the storm clouds are building. The storm clouds are building. We get into chapter 14, and all of a sudden you see one of the closest friends of Jesus turn on him and betray him. You see these false, hollow promises of his disciples. Oh, we'll never leave you. And the storm clouds are booming. The thunderheads are massive. And as our text begins today, the lightning begins to strike, and the storm is upon us, and Jesus steps in the center of the storm. Here's the first thing I want us to see today. First thing I want us to see is the sorrow of Jesus. If you're a note taker, I would encourage you to write that down. I want us to see the painful sorrow of Jesus. You know, what's going on in our text is this unique thing where we have Jesus. And within Jesus, the God-man, there are two natures. There is the divine nature of Jesus and there's the human nature of Jesus. And as we journey through our text, there are times when the divine nature of Jesus is in view and there's times when the human nature of Jesus is in view. And when we're looking at the painful sorrow of Jesus, we see the human sorrow of Jesus. Verse 26, he's he's singing a hymn. Now Jesus knows the cross is awaiting and him and his disciples are ready to leave the comforts and the protection of the upper room. And I can imagine Jesus Knowing that Gethsemane is minutes away, knowing that his arrest is minutes away, he's singing a hymn. He's singing songs of worship with his men, knowing that those dark storm clouds are about to to roll over the top of his head. And as they head out, they end up on the outside of the Garden of Gethsemane, and then Jesus has. The bulk of his disciples wait at the gate and then he goes in a little bit deeper with the three inner circle guys, Peter, James, and John. Verses 32 through 34 tell us that Jesus goes in and 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 the text tells us in verse 33 that Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And what Jesus says to his three closest friends in a moment of utter vulnerability and transparency, he says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. And we see the humanity of Jesus. And they go to this olive grove called Gethsemane. No doubt if you've heard any teachings on this, you've heard of the, what, what Gethsemane means. It means, it means oil press. The, the picture here is of great pressure. And if you were a part of an oil or an olive grove and you were, were going to press the olives for, for olive oil back in the day, there would be this process where they would all be grounded to a paste and placed in these baskets. And then there would be three separate uh, uh, practices that would crush those olives so that the olive oil would, would, would be leached out. The, the first... The first pressing of the olive paste would be the virgin olive oil and that would be given to the temple as an offering and the second pressing would be for for cooking and perfume and cosmetics in the home and then the third would be for like soap and for, you know, like uh, oil for the lamps. But there's three separate... Pressings that happen in the Garden of Gethsemane. Here's Jesus in the garden. Three separate times we see in our text, he goes back and his disciples are, are sleeping. We see him being pressed and being crushed. In fact, Luke's gospel tells us that the pressure was so great on Jesus as he was being pressed by the weight of what awaited him. Blood seeped out of his pores as sweat. The prophet Isaiah tells us that Jesus would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. We see Jesus in the garden being crushed, and his soul is sorrowful. Kent Hughes said, In the garden on that night, uh, Jesus underwent a stress of cosmic dimensions, the greatest in the chronicles of the universe. Jesus, of course, knew that the cross was coming and what it entailed, but as he looked into the cup he must drink that night, he was astonished and overcome with horror. Hughes goes on to say that no human being, however great his or her anguish, has ever experienced Anything like this, and so what was the substance of this sorrow that Jesus speaks of? What was informing the words, his anguish in the words that he was deeply sorrowful? Well, I think one that we've been talking about for several weeks is there's a heartbreaking betrayal that's unfolding here in the garden. I mean, we see that Judas comes. You know, after we we, we studied this last week and the week before, Jesus knew the the betrayal that was. was going to come his way at the hands of Judas. And we've looked at the the text in in Mark 14 up to this point, and there were these moments when Jesus was extending a hand, an opportunity for, for Judas to confess and repent and come back in right standing. And we see the heart of Jesus, the heart of Jesus for this man whom he loves. But then Judas shows up in verses 42 through 46, and he gives Jesus this kiss. The, the word there is katafileo. It's, 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 it's not just phileo, like a friendship kiss. The word here, the word that's used for kiss, is this idea of a prolonged kiss. It's to kiss again and again. It's to kiss tenderly. It's a more meaningful kiss that Judas lays on the cheek of Jesus. One scholar puts it this way. He says, this is a prolonged kiss. It's the kind of kiss one gives to someone he loves. Judas's kiss drips with horror, for it is a callous prostitution of one of humanity's most sacred symbols. Judas' act, Judas's act was uh, a decide, a God killer, and a suicide. So this is where we get the phrase, kiss of death. This is a heart-wrenching betrayal. Jesus loved this man. He spent three years with this man. He instructed him and fed him and taught him and rebuked him and corrected him and walked with him and cared for him. This was his friend. In fact, one of the Gospels tells us that Jesus called him friend in this moment. Friend, do what you've come to do. As I think about that, as I think about Jesus receiving the kiss of death and not punching Ju- Judas or smiting Judas, as he's receiving the kiss of death at the hands of deep betrayal, it leads me to wonder, how, 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 do, how have I responded in my life? How have we responded traditionally? How have you responded to betrayal? I don't know if there's anything more painful than betrayal. It's 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 searing. And my guess is there's lots of in here that have experienced deep, deep betrayal at the hands of a significant other, maybe a family member, a dear friend, a place of work or a boss. And we see Jesus here not retaliating, not returning hate for hate, but we see Jesus receiving this betrayal, and there's honestly there's love in his heart for this man who is bringing destruction upon himself so that's part of the sorrow, was betrayal. There's desertion. There's abandonment. I mean, all this, I mean this, this, whole, this whole text is filled with the empty promises of the disciples. Oh, they say in verse 31, uh, if we must die, we will never deny you. Yeah, right. They all, they all said it. And then we see, okay, I'll never deny you, Jesus. I'll be with you to the very end. You can trust in me, but it's in your hour of greatest need. You've just confessed to me that your soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. You've, you've begged me to watch and pray, but actually I'm going to sleep and you're going to come back and you're going to rebuke me stay awake I need you to watch and pray but I'm going to fall asleep again and then a second time and then a third time and so there's this 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 utter desertion a a physical desertion and a spiritual desertion and our text is sort of framed with them saying we'll never leave you and abandon you and then the haunting heart-wrenching words of verse 50 they all left him and fled and we even have this unique little uh, add-on, verses 51 and 52, about this young man who was watching from a distance with a linen cloth. And when they go to seize this young man, the linen cloth comes off, and he's left naked and exposed and afraid and ashamed, and in embarrassment he runs away. The picture is what life is like without Jesus. Naked and shame-filled. Some have speculated over the centuries that the, the reason verses 51 and 52 are in Mark's gospel is that is. Mark, John Mark himself, the author of the gospel, putting himself, he was, some believe that's him saying, I was in the garden that night. There's no way to know that for sure. But there's this this heartbreaking desertion of his closest friends. And then I think most significantly, obviously, what was leading to the sorrowful heart of Jesus? Well, it was the, the weight of divine judgment that awaited him. Verse 34, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And he goes a little farther and the text tells us that he falls on the ground. He just falls on the ground, on his face before the Father. And he prays to the Father, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Mark tells us that that Jesus prayed if it were possible that the hour might pass from him. And so Jesus goes to the Father, falls on his face, and he's staring at this cup, this cup of suffering, this cup of wrath. The picture of a cup being stored up and poured out is, is, is throughout the scriptures. God's wrath being poured up in a cup, and it's going to be poured out. And in that cup is the depravity of humankind and the wrath, the just wrath of God for that, for that depravity. And when I think of Jesus, God in the flesh, talking to his closest friends, and confessing in a moment of utter vulnerability, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. I think of those hundreds of conversations I've had with my friends and my brothers and sisters and my family in some of those seasons in my life where I've felt at different times that my soul was crushed with grief to the point of death. Have you ever felt that way? I'm reminded that we have a God in Jesus who isn't this impersonal, unfeeling, unfeeling, far-off, distant deity that observes human affairs from a safe distance, never you know, endeavoring to engage with us. Now, we have, a, we have a high priest, Hebrews says, that has experienced the very same things you and I have experienced. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. And so I think we're intended to see the, the, the striking harrowing, heart-wrenching sorrow of Jesus. The second thing I think we're intended to see is the command of Jesus, primarily encapsulated in verse 38. I think we're intended here to see the command of Jesus in addition to his sorrow. There's three times, uh, to my count, that Jesus gives little commands or imperatives in this whole section. The beginning, he tells his disciples to sit here. In the middle, he tells his disciples to rise. So sit here and rise up. And the only other command he gives in this whole body of text is when he tells his disciples to watch and pray. And in fact, in three different times, he talks about watchfulness. He says in verse 34, remain here and watch. He says in verse 37, could you not watch one hour? And then in verse 38, he says all of it, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So his, his, to his disciples, I think then then, and also there's implication for us today, there's this encouragement by Jesus to watch and pray. And he tells them why they should watch and pray. that They don't fall into temptation. The antidote for for falling into temptation and sinning against God and getting caught up in our flesh is watching and praying. And so the question is, what are they to be watching for? If you were Peter, James, or John, and you heard Jesus say this to you 2,000 years ago in the Garden of Gethsemane under the cover of night, and he said, watch and pray, what do you suppose they believed that Jesus was asking them to be watchful for or watchful of? I mean, perhaps they're being encouraged to be watchful for coming threats. I mean, Mark tells us that there's a band of, there's a mob, an angry mob with clubs and swords roving around the hillside looking for Jesus. So there's a very real physical threat that awaits. Maybe that's part of it. You know, we believe that Peter was the source for Mark in writing the gospel. Later on, Peter, in 1 Peter, writes of himself be sober minded. Be watchful for your adversary. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So maybe there's this this watch for coming threats, both both human threats and spiritual threats. That could be a part of the watchfulness. Perhaps he's calling them to kind of a a watch as, as a spiritual vigilance. You know, there's this contrast in the text between them sleeping and Jesus saying, no, 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 wake up and watch. And so maybe the implication is sort of this figurative, be spiritually vigilant and spiritually watchful. You think about the language of chapter 13. Jesus says, be on guard, don't be caught sleeping, stay awake, keep awake. The author of Hebrews talks about listening to the teachings, paying attention to what we've learned so that we don't drift away. So maybe there's this call by Jesus for his disciples to be vigilant. He, he goes on to say that the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. But perhaps, most significantly, what the disciples are to watch is to watch Jesus. Jesus. Watch Jesus in his obedience, in his perfect obedience. This shouldn't come as a surprise to them or to anybody who's reading the Gospel of Mark. He's made it abundantly clear why he's come. Jesus said in Mark 10, 45, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Just minutes before this, as they were in the upper room, as Jesus was passing the cup of wine around the room, he said, this is my blood which, is given and which has been poured out for many. And so this is Jesus being perfectly obedient, and in fact this is the will of the Father. If you notice how our text is framed in t- verse twenty-seven, Jesus quotes Zechariah thirteen seven, which is, says when the when the sheep is struck the, the the or when the shepherd is struck, the sheep will be scattered. And then the last thing he says to his disciples in verse forty-nine is that, you know, the scriptures must be fulfilled. And so this is the divine, sovereign will of God unfolding. This is why Jesus came. He came to be a ransom. He came to give his life for many. He came to pour out his blood. He came to be perfectly obedient. And perhaps Jesus is saying to those disciples, watch me in the face of crushing, heart-wrenching oppression and affliction. Watch me. Watch my obedience. Your salvation is found in what I'm doing for you in this moment. We'll come back to this. He also tells them to, to pray. Watch and pray. And then he he leaves this example for them in how to pray. Abba, Father, he says, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. There's some pretty clear parallels here to the Lord's Prayer. Abba, Father, Jesus says, and in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, our Father in heaven, yet not what I will, but you will, the Lord's Prayer says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so what are some of the components here of the prayer of Jesus that we can cling cling on to, that we can can cling to when we think about what it means to, to be a praying people? When Jesus commands us to be watchful and prayerful, what might he be modeling for us in this text? Well, one, he calls the Father Abba, which is a term of intimacy. Jewish children would have called their earthly fathers Abba, but it was also, I was reading this week, this uh, in both Aramaic and Greek, it was used to address fathers, and so by adults as well. And so some of the pushback is that I think a lot of us have said that Abba means daddy. Some of the that can be a little bit misleading and a little bit irreverent, but the idea is, is the same. Praying to God as our Father conveys authority, warmth, and intimacy of a loving Father's care. So here's Jesus, and he's we see, him, we see intimacy between him and the Father, Abba. Jesus knows the Father, and the Father knows Jesus. So we see intimacy. The second thing, he says, all things are possible for you. He's exalting the, the omnipotence and the sovereignty of the Father. Father, you're all-powerful. Father, you control all things. There's reverence for the Father in his prayer. We see him say, remove this cup from me. This is an honest, vulnerable request. Jesus is looking at the cup of wrath that awaits him, and it's buckling his knees. In fact, he tells his disciples, it's so hard even to consider it that he wants to die. My my soul is sorrowful to the point of death, even considering the cup of wrath that awaits him. So in a moment of of brutal honesty before the Father, of vulnerable honesty, he's like, oh God, Father, could you take this from me? So we see vulnerable honesty in the prayer of Jesus. And then he says, but yet not what I will. This is a trusting submission to the Father. And Jesus knows the Father. He knows the heart of the Father. He knows the will of the Father. And he knows that it's good. And so he recognizes that his desires, his human desires might get in the way. So we see submission in the prayer of Jesus. And lastly, he says, yet not what I will, but what you will. And those last four words is a declaration of trust. Jesus trusts in the Father's will, even if it means pain in the moment. And so we see this prayer of Jesus that he's modeling for his disciples as he tells them to watch and pray. The kind of prayer modeled by Jesus is a prayer of intimacy and reverence and vulnerable honesty and submission and trust unto the Father. We were talking about this as a staff uh, on Thursday. And we were talking about, you know, the longer you walk with the Lord... It seems as if these curveballs in our spiritual lives come our way and things aren't unfolding the way we think they should. And we find ourselves in our own little mini Gethsemanes. And if you talk to anybody who's walked with Jesus long enough, they're going to tell you of heart-wrenching, heartbreaking moments where they're on their face, being crushed, their sweat is his blood, and they're crying out to God. Like, why, God? Pastor Jeremy said, and I, I wrote down the quote, he said, If you live long enough in the Lord, you'll come up against seasons when trusting the Lord will be the hardest thing you've ever done. I know I've been there. And my guess is some of you have been there. And when we look at Jesus in the garden, the weight of God's wrath and humankind's sin upon his shoulders, when we consider what he's betrayed, what he's endured, I mean, think of what he's endured coming up to this moment. He's endured betrayal by a friend, desertion by his friends, utter anxiety to the point of death, unspeakable physical pain he's going to endure. He's been lied about and lied to. He's been defamed publicly. Everything that breaks our heart, everything that destroys our lives, everything that knocks us on our face, he has experienced. And I think about the original audience who would have received Mark's gospel. We know that it was Roman Christians in the Roman Empire who received this gospel in uh, the 60 A.D.s around that time. And these were men and women believers, followers of Jesus, who were experiencing unspeakable persecution and affliction at the hands of Caesar and the Roman Empire. How encouraging would this have been to, to gaze upon the obedience of Jesus in the midst of unspeakable affliction? And I thought about this. I thought about my prayer life. And I thought about our collective prayer life as a church. I thought about you, and I, and I just speculated, what would it look like if our prayers reflected the very heart posture of Jesus here? If we knew God in such a way where we could approach him with intimacy, with reverence in our hearts, we could speak vulnerably and honestly before him because he knows all things. We could, in trusting his character, submit ourselves to him and trust his will. So as hard as this scene is, there's also hope. I don't want us to lose hope. If you look at verse 28, Jesus gives us a glimmer that this, the end of the story isn't the breaking that happens in Gethsemane. He says in verse 28, after he tells his disciples by quoting Zechariah 13 that they are going to scatter, he tells them, after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So even in the midst of all of this, there is still resurrection hope. So no matter what, so that just speaks to our context. If, if you happen to find yourself in your own little mini Gethsemane, there is resurrection hope. This is not the end of the story. And we know that as, as followers of Jesus. And so we've got these two things we're, we're meant to see. We're meant to see the sorrow of Jesus. and We're meant to see the command of Jesus to watch and pray. And lastly, and above all things, I believe, we, we need to see the perfect obedience of Jesus here in the garden. We need to see his perfect obedience. The author of Hebrews... So, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels, all talk about the garden of Gethsemane. And they all kind of provide kind of nuanced perspectives of this moment. But also the author of Hebrews speaks of the garden of Gethsemane in chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. And it says some really important things here. Hebrews 5, verse 7, we read, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. This is, a, this is, a, this is speaking of Christ on his knees in the garden. Then in verse 8, we read this incredible line. This incredible verse, Hebrews 5.8, Although he, Jesus, was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Another translation puts it this way, even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. I read this week that the greatest display of obedience that will ever be known, in the greatest display of obedience that will ever be known, Jesus took the full chalice of man's sin in God's wrath, looked, shuddering deep into its depth and in a still steel act of will drank it all. Jesus was perfectly obedient in the garden. He looked at this cup and it was full of 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 the depraved, broken, disgusting, awful, heart wrenching sin of humankind. Every holocaust, every lie, every betrayal, every assault, every war, every evil, vile, awful thing was in that cup, and also was a cup full of God's wrath for his hatred of those things. We read in Second Corinthians that God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin in him, we might become the righteousness of God. We're meant to see the obedience of Jesus as he receives this cup. Again, Kent Hughes writes, gazing into the cup, Jesus saw hell opened for him, and he staggered. It's no wonder that he saw that we see blood like sweat and tears and that we hear him crying out for deliverance. Even as those around Jesus betrayed him and abandoned him, we see this steady resolve of Jesus. As the storm is raging, we see the steady resolve of Jesus to stand up and step into it. In fact, there's this great line Was it in verse 42? Jesus says, when all is said and done, when when Judas and and the angry mob enter the garden, Jesus has already done pleading with his disciples. There's this incredible line. I think this is one of the most powerful lines in scripture. Jesus says, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus wasn't saying, hey, let's run away. Judas and the the, the club-wielding, sword-wielding captors are to get me. Jesus said, no, rise. And rather than flee like those men around him, he stepped toward his captors. He stepped toward the storm. On your behalf and on my behalf. He takes the cup of wrath. Even as those around him run away and abandon him. Resolve in the face of heartbreaking betrayal. Resolve in the face of heartbreaking desertion. Resolve in the face of divine judgment. And in the Christian life, we are called to keep our eyes on Jesus. Jesus says, watch and pray. Watch him in his obedience. I love what the author of Hebrews says, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, before the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And we see Jesus, he, he had the authority, had he so chose, to do whatever he wanted here. Gospel of John kind of paints this picture in, in chapter 18. When they go to seize Jesus, they, they ask him, Jesus when he sees this angry mob in, in John's gospel, he says, who are you guys seeking? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And then Jesus says to them, I am he. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, the, the gospel of John tells us that they drew back and fell to the ground. I mean, it's, it's analogous of... The burning bush when God says to Moses Moses says who shall I tell the, the Israelites who is sending me and, and God says to Moses will tell them that I am sent here. It's like this self designation of God when Jesus says I am he they fall to the ground. Jesus could have just called down, in one of the other gospels Jesus said I can call down 12 legions of angels I can call down 72,000 angels right now and obliterate this whole thing but he doesn't verse 53 is incredible to me in our text, it's, it's next week's text it says they led him away I mean, these men that fell on their face when Jesus said, I am he. I mean, here's Jesus who, who raised the dead, who calmed the storms, who, who healed the sick, who cast out demons, who, who caused bread and fish to multiply miraculously, who caused these men to fall on their face when his name is even mentioned. All, he, he allows himself to be led away, and we are meant to see his perfect obedience. Rise, let us be going, he says. Let the scriptures be fulfilled, he says. Father, let your will be done. Jesus is perfectly obedient to the will of the Father. I was drawing on the, on the chalkboard in our, our, our conference room this week, you know, like a plot arc. You guys have all seen plot arcs. And when you're reading narrative like this, there's a plot arc that follows. So the whole Bible is a plot arc. And then there's, you know, then books of the Bible that are narrative have a plot arc. And, you know, there's a setting and there's this rising tension then the conflict and then, the, then sort of like this, um, this slowing down tension and then this like this new reality or this resolution or this stasis. That's what a plot arc is. So rising tension falling tension. And it's, a, you know, I've always, when I've thought of the gospel, when i thought of the story of Jesus, I've always just put the cross at the very top of the, of the climax of the story. The setting, the rising tension, the climax. And I was thinking about, I think this is, the, I mean, I, the cross is an implication of this, obviously, but, but Jesus had a decision to make. As he's on his faith, face in the garden, as he's being crushed, as blood is seeping out of him, as he's being crushed with the weight of God's wrath in this cup, he, he, could, have, he could have walked away in disobedience. But when he got up on his feet and he stepped into the storm, he made the definitive decision that's changed the course of human history forever and ever. I think the top of the, of the climax of the story is the obedience of Jesus to pull himself off the ground and step toward the cross. This is the moment right here. Human history hinged on this moment. Redemptive history hinged on this moment. He steps toward his captors in selfless obedience. The hour has come And Jesus goes out into the storm. He allows himself to be found. He knows he's going to be abandoned. He knows he's going to be betrayed. He knows the cup of divine judgment that awaits him. And in perfect knowledge of all of this, he says, Abba, Father, let your will be done. Do you see him in the garden? We have to see him. Do you see him rise up and step toward the cross? Do you see his perfect obedience? Think of this biblically for a sec. When's the last time in the Bible we saw a man face temptation in a garden? Genesis 3. Adam's disobedience brought devastating consequence. Adam was in a garden and he faced temptation He crumbled to the temptation which led to the death and condemnation for all humankind. And here in another garden, in a fulfillment of the promise of God over the serpent in Genesis 3, the head of the serpent is being crushed by the obedient man Jesus, stepping toward the cross. It's his righteous obedience in the garden of Gethsemane that now leads to the justification and to life for all men. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 5 verses 18 through 21. Paul says, therefore, listen, he summarizes all of this in a few verses. Paul writes, therefore, he's talking about Adam, the first Adam and Jesus, the second Adam. He says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, he's talking about Adam in the Garden of Eden, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. You see him contrasting Adam and Jesus here? For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the other man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So as we look at the text today, we've we got to see the sorrow of Jesus his painful sorrow. We have, to, we have to hear and listen and respond to this command to watch and pray. But we, we absolutely have to see his perfect obedience. If you see nothing else today, see the perfect obedience of Jesus. This is so much better than moralism. Our temptation sometimes as human readers is to look at Jesus and look at his moral decisions, which is good. We want to be like Christ. And apart from the gospel, apart from the redeeming, saving, salvific work of Christ that he accomplished on our own strength, we just try to live moral lives. It's only through the supernatural, regenerating, new life work of Jesus that we have any hope. And it's in the obedience of Jesus here that our salvation is found. And so, so what does this say, right? So, so what does this picture of Jesus confronting the storm say to us? What does it say to us sitting here today? What, what is the lesson as you and I gaze upon Jesus in the face of the storm, as we gaze upon his steady resolve? What is the lesson of Jesus in the midst of the storm? Two things I want you to hear. Number one, I want you to hear that the perfect obedience of Jesus gives us a place to stand. The perfect obedience of Jesus gives us a place to stand. Jesus accomplished something in the storm. He came to give himself as a ransom for many. He came to pour out his blood for many. That's you and that's me. He came to go out into the storm and to rescue us from sin and death. And even now as you and I seek to walk with Jesus and figure this life out, he has provided an anchor upon which we can cling to in the storm and he clings to us. I've heard Timothy Keller teach on this quite a bit over the years. But if you're in Christ today, if you have trusted in Jesus as your Savior, here's what that means for you. That means when we're looking at Jesus, take the cup of wrath in our text. When we, in, the, in the coming weeks as we see him on the cross uh, as the, our substitutionary atoning sacrifice, as a propitiation for our sin, as we look at Jesus dying in our place, as we look at the wrath of God being poured out on Jesus in our place, here's what that means for you and for me that have trusted in Christ that have been born again. Here's what it means. When you have your Gethsemane moments, which we all do, When you're on your face, wretched and weeping, and your blood is, and your sweat is as blood, and you're crying out before God, and your teeth are gnashing, when you're suffering, here's what you can know for sure you can know that it is not God punishing you. Because God was punished for us. Christ was punished in our place. And so here's, I don't want to be trite about this because I know that sufferings are, are awful and I don't want to just sort of like be cutesy about the, about the afflictions and the valleys of the shadows of death that you're walking through. But, but, but like, I'm quoting Timothy Keller here, we can know that when we suffer, that, that if we're in Christ, that, that, that the suffering that we experience today is designed by God for our good. So if you're in your own mini Gethsemane today, which I know some of you are, You can know that the suffering and the affliction that you feel is for your holiness. And God is far more concerned with our holiness than he is with our happiness. You can know that for sure. And it's not just, there's resurrection hope in our text. He's coming back. We just got done studying this over the previous weeks. He's present with us. We just studied in in the the, the Lord's Supper that he is uniquely present with us in the midst of life's struggles. We don't do this thing alone. So so the, the perfect obedience of Jesus gives us a place to stand. He was punished for us, and so we can now, with the imputed or the, or the righteousness of Christ upon us, we have a place to stand. And we have to remember, secondly, that, that this Jesus that we see in the text today, being perfectly obedient, he's with you and me today in the storm. The same Jesus. And that's a, a, a large part of what the Lord's Supper reveals to us. His body and his blood. His presence with his people. He said in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, remember what Jesus said, how he closed the Gospel of Matthew. He tells them to be make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all that I've commanded and be sure of this, Jesus says. His final words in Matthew's gospel: be sure of this, church. I am with you always, to the very end of the age. He's with us. So do you see him? And do you see his perfect obedience? That is what informs our worship. That is what gives us life is in the obedience of Jesus. Pray with me. Father, I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful for the privilege you give us of gathering week in and week out and sitting under the authority of this word. And God, I'm thankful just for just the way that you reveal yourself to us. God, I'm thankful that we can crack open the scriptures and... and, and On one hand, it's this ancient text that's thousands of years old that's written to a different culture and a different context. And there's the the work of trying to interpret that. But on the other hand, God, it is just so powerfully poignant and applicable to our lives today. God, I know that as we look in our own lives and there are hard things and gosh, as we lift our eyes up, Lord, and we look at the world around us, it seems as if every other day there's something else to bring about fear and uncertainty and unsettledness. And oh man, we look at you in the garden, Jesus, and we see you in your perfect obedience on our behalf and it just gives us hope and it secures our salvation and it secures our future. And we are just so thankful. God, I'm mindful of the words of the psalmist who says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my rock, my God, in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. God, would you give us today, wherever we may be in our journey with you or our pursuit of you, God, would you give us words of faith to cry out to you, to ask you to save us as we gaze upon you and your perfect obedience. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.